Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Last week, we started the final phase of the book of 1 Corinthians, and that's coming down through the last chapter. And uh, this has been a great book. I, I, I really enjoyed teaching it, and I look at it as a prelude to what we're going to do uh, in 2 Corinthians, and that's we're going to move right into that one and just take the time to, to lay that out since we've got this one fresh in our mind because the two really got to go together. And, uh, but it's been great. I, I've enjoyed it. I've learned uh, a lot about it myself that I didn't know just by the time I had to put into it. And last week we saw in this chapter how that, you know, the church at Corinth who was just about out of line and messed up on everything uh, that they do. Now, we saw last week how they were messed up on their concept of giving. Uh, not only to their church as individuals, but uh, to other Christians and, and reaching out to those who uh, were in need. And this book is filled, I, I think, personally, with great biblical principles that uh, give so much insight into the area of our lives. And I told you before that Paul takes this church literally to task. He deals with them on many, many, many issues. And in him dealing with them, we get the kind of like a double application. We get to see how they got into the problem, what their problem was, and then we get to see how he deals with it, which is really good for us, but then we learn the principles that go along with it that we can apply them to our own lives. And today, uh, we're going to look at uh, uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 14. And uh, in these six verses, again, you're going to see they're just packed with incredible material uh, that for us to learn from. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at some uh, great concepts, I think, to better uh, help us understand what God has called us to do. And, you know, I've said it many, many times, the church is only as strong as the individuals that are in it. So we look forward today to, uh, to adding one more uh, link to our chain here and, and, and strengthening things up. Now, he says in chapter 16, pick it up in verse 9, he says, For a great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy come, see that he may be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord, as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but conduct him forth in peace, that he may come unto me, for I look for him with the brethren. As touching our brother Apollos, I greatly desired him to come unto you uh, with the brethren, but his will was not at all to come at this time, but he will come when he shall have convenient time. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. Let all things be done with charity. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We thank you for all that you've done for us as a church, for the great people that you've given us. We pray, Father, that with all the busy things this week that we thought about and all the activities we were involved in, that right now for just a small period of time we can, we can clear our minds clear all the things out that we can stay focused on what you have for us today. Now, Lord, uh, take the Word of God. We're needy people today. God's people, there's never been a time in the history of the church that's needed more uh, than they need today. Not necessarily in food and clothing, but in stability, in the principles of the Word of God that enact everything in our lives. And help us today to learn to glean from this and help us to better define today, after today, what you've called us to do and what you've called this church to do, and to reach out and touch the lives of other people, however you may give us the opportunity to do that. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. 
Now, we're not going to get very far in this verse. In fact, as I was briefing over chapter 16, you know, I looked at it and I thought, okay, because what I usually do is look at the chapter and then I try to, you know, get break it down into five or six, seven, how many points there are that I think are really beneficial that we can learn something from. Usually the last chapter in a book, you got to struggle with that because he's just saying goodbye to everybody. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like the Walton, so you, don't, you can't really get anything out of it, and you got to, but that's not true here. Uh, you're going to see that <clears throat> we'll, this last chapter, almost verse by verse, almost, certainly section by section, it's just got a lot of things in it that we need to look at that we can glean from. And I, I, we won't get any farther in <clears throat> verse 9. In fact, we only get the first part of verse 9 today. But he says there, if I may read it again for you, he says, for a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now, this is a great verse with great insight and in how God uh, o- uh, operates in our lives and gives us the things that we need to do. When I, when I first got into the ministry and really got my uh, heart into the Word of God, uh, one of the great study, one of the best studies I ever took, and uh, I think it's a great study for anybody in time, is to study two aspects in the Bible. He says here that a great door was open to him. You know, doors have keys. And two of the greatest studies you're ever going to get into the Bible is going to study keys and study doors. You know, keys open doors. And you'll find as you come down through the Bible that there are seven literal keys that he talks about within the Bible. And they're quite incredible to study. Keys, you know, we use it in our terminology today. Keys are always what changes something. You know, in any church, you have key people, see? Uh, If you have people who are doing things, you always have a key man or a key lady that, that that really makes things happen. You know, in history, you'll find that there, you study history, church history, world history, doesn't matter. You'll find, as anybody who writes about history, he'll tell you that this is a key event. What does that mean? It means that it, it changed things. It went from, we talk about a key opening a door, from a closed door to an open door. Well, we use the term <coughs> key in that sense uh, through in, our, in everything we do. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll, somebody will say, well, you did a great job. And you'll say, well, so-and-so over there, he played a key part in what we were doing. You're going to watch the football game this afternoon. The Chiefs try to beat the Oakland Raiders. And you're going to hear there, I guarantee you, either on one side or the other, the sports commentary is going to say, now that guy right there, he's a key part of their defense, you see? Or he's a key part of their offense. And uh, there are people who are key to different things. And keys in the Bible are an incredible study. And like I said, seven different literal keys coming through the Bible. Now, my purpose today, I'm not going to go into any great detail. We could spend probably 30, 40 minutes in each one of these, but I want to get to where I want to get. But I want to show you the importance of keys and doors because Paul said, for a great door, see, is open unto me. And we want to look at doors in the Bible, great study, but you can't study door without studying keys. Now, over there in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, there's your first key. And there he talks about the key of knowledge. And in the context there, you know what that, that context is? It's the context of the key of knowledge is understanding who Jesus Christ was. And when you study that passage, you'll find that the scribes and the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees took the key from the people and the key of knowledge of who Christ was. 
See, somebody took the key for the nation of Israel to really grasp who the nation of Israel is. And that happens a lot in religious circles, especially with religious professionals. They spend most of their time not giving you the keys of the Bible. That's why in my biblical series of commentaries and books that I wrote back there, they're all under the aspect of the keys of the Bible. Because my job is to give you the keys to the Bible. In Luke chapter 11, verse 52, the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the lawyers and the professional crowd, they wanted to take the keys from the people. And they did. They did. It's exactly what happened. So there you have the key of knowledge. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, it talks about Peter getting the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And you'll find that uh, Peter, uh, when you start, you know, we know our Bible basics now. We've been through it. Who wouldn't say that when it comes to the nation of Israel that Peter's not a key individual? See? You know why he's a key individual? He had the key to the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. Then you have another key individual, and he's got the next key, and that's Paul. He's got the key to the kingdom of God. And it all changes things. And uh, you know your Bible. You know how that it all changes in Acts chapter 7. You know what happens in Acts chapter 7? One door closes and another door opens. God is finished with one key, that'll be Peter, the kingdom of heaven, and now he opens up another door, the kingdom of God, and Paul uses that key to take the gospel to the Gentiles. In in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, you have your fourth key. And we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit later on, but this is called the key of David. And this is the church age key. This is for you and for me. And you hear me talk about all the time that my goal and what I try to do, as impossible as it may be, is to build a Philadelphian church in the Laodicean church period. But to do, somebody says, how do you do that? You've got to have a key. And the key is the key of David. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, it talks about uh, the key to the bottomless pit. It says, I saw a star, far from, a star fall from heaven, and unto him was given a key to the bottomless pit. Now, this is not a twinkle, twinkle little star like you see up in the sky, because this star, it's called a hymn. And when you study that out, you'll find that that star is an angel that comes down and opens up the key to the bottomless pit during the tribulation period. Now, this coming, what, what day is Halloween? Monday? A week from Monday. Yeah, a week from Monday. That's right. A week from Monday. And you know what? Most people don't know why things happen. You know what's going to happen next Monday night in your neighborhood, probably with your kids? You know what's going to take place? They're going to dress up like goblins and ghouls. Of course, they don't. It used to be a time when that's what you were. Now you're everything. Now you're, you know, all movie stars or Dorothy or, you know, it's, it's mundane now. But it used to be that all you were was something that was scary. And, you, 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 and, and what happened was that that night, October 31st, which is the Feast of the Dead, you know, going back. But the Bible concept of it is most people don't get. What happens for three or four hours that all these little goblins and kids that your kids, you know, and I, most preachers don't like Halloween. I think it's a great deal, personally. Most of you here, I know one preacher that every time it comes around Halloween, you're going to get a series on why you shouldn't have your kids celebrate Halloween. And, you know, a lot of guys go that way. I, I don't go that way. I think it's a good, healthy thing for your kids. I mean, my goodness, they act like demons all week long. Why not let them play it out? I think they need to have their demon night where they get out and do that. But the bottom line is what I'm saying is, you know where Halloween originally comes from in the Bible? Revelation chapter 9. In the tribulation period, that key to the bottomless pit, if you read it, opens up, and all those things living down there in that bottomless pit, those grotesque things that we talk about uh, when we study that passage, come out and walk up and down planet Earth for a period of time. Just like what's going to happen in type on Halloween. 
That's why kids dress up to look like all that stuff, and then they walk around, and they knock on doors. They say trick or treat, saved or lost, you know. And uh, it's a thing where that's exactly where it goes back to in the Bible, even though nobody knows that. It's okay. That's just the way it worked. But there's a key to the bottomless pit. Then you got key six and seven found in Revelation chapter one, verse 18, and that's the key to death and hell, see? And uh, that's where uh, you told in Matthew chapter 16 that the hell has gates, you see? Gates, and a gate has a key, and a gate is like a door. And so now he's got the key to death and hell. That has to do with your, uh, our resurrection. Bible says in, in Revelation, chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, that when Christ died, was buried, and rose again, Bible says that he had the keys of death and hell. See? So there's seven keys in your Bible that are they're very, very important. Very important. Then you have another great study connected with keys, and that's doors in the Bible. And that's equally, you know, again, I, my purpose is not to, my purpose is just to excite your imagination, and maybe you'll go home and study these out on your own, but uh, doors are great. And you got a you got Genesis chapter six. You got you got Noah's Ark. Now that's a good door. And that door was in the side. Most people don't understand that that uh, Noah's Ark is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, when judgment fell on the earth, it's a picture of God coming down and judging the world. But the people that were safe were people that went in the ark. And that ark's a type of Christ. You know how they went into that ark? They went into that ark through a door in the side. You know how you got in Christ? You got in because a Roman soldier put a spear and put a hole in his side. See, that's how it works. So that's a type of Christ. So, you know, that's, that's the way it works. So that's a great door to study. And you know something else in that passage when God shut the door? I mean, God left the door open for 120 years if you read the passage. And right now, people have a chance to get saved. But you know what? When God shut that door back there, nobody got in. And there comes a time in your life when God is going to shut the door and you're not going to get in. Just that simple. Pretty easy, isn't it? So a great term for back then in Genesis 6 and today is one we use all the time, but I think it's very prevalent. Don't miss the boat. Get on. Get on. Then in Exodus chapter 12, you have another great door. That's a great study. And that is when the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. And what did he tell them to do with that blood? He put it, put them on the door. He put it on the side post of the door and a little, the top of the door. And uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great study. It's a picture of our salvation connected with a door. And uh, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 19. There you got a door at the eastern gate. And you'll find that in Ezekiel 43, 4 and 44, 1 through 3. And that door is where Christ's glory goes into Jerusalem at the second coming of Christ. That's the eastern gate, and there's a door there. Right now, if you go over there and see the eastern gate, it's walled up. It was walled up for many, 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 many years. In fact, in 1543, Suleiman the Magnificent, who was a Turk, a Muslim, he defeated, took the kick the Christians out and, and, uh, and took over Jerusalem, and uh, he fancied himself as, as, the, uh, as Christ, as the Messiah. And he, he was, gonna, he was going to, uh, made proclamation that he was going to walk through that eastern gate and display himself as Christ. And of course, everybody knew that that eastern gate is reserved for the Lord Jesus. So in 1543, uh, he was going to go through and do that. And that night when he went to bed, he had a terrible dream and a terrible nightmare. And he had a dream that he walked through it and God was waiting on the other side and killed him. So he never went through. And just to stem his temptation, you know what he did? He walled up that eastern gate that nobody can go through it now. 
And if you'd go over there to the Jerusalem today, you know what you'd see at the, at the Eastern Gate? You'd see, that, you'd see that door all walled up because that's reserved for somebody that's going to come through. Great study. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 15, you got the Valley of Achor. And down there, it's called, you got a place called the Door of Hope. That'll be tied into the second coming of Christ. It's that, that great study. I'll give you a little help with it. The Achor is the valley where Achan was killed uh, back there with, after the accursed thing in Joshua chapter 7, verse 26. Great key. Great study. Great study. Here's what it messes up God's people. Matthew chapter 25, verse 10. Bible says there was 10 virgins. Five were wise and five were foolish. And the Bible says that some were out there fooling around and the bridegroom came, that's Christ. And the Bible says that they went with him to the marriage. And know what it says then? The door was shut. That's a great study. That's a great study. Now, here's a weird one. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 through 7. It's a weird story. It's a story about somebody in the middle of the night at 12 midnight, and that's always a key thing in the Bible. But he goes to his friend at midnight, and he says, he says, hey, look, he says, he says, can you give me three loaves of bread? And the answer back from the person is, trouble me not. I'm in bed with my children, and the door is shut. That's a great study. Great study. John chapter 10, verses 1 through 6, you got the door of a sheepfold. Here's a study where the Bible says that the door is open. <clears throat> There's a porter there. Somebody goes up. Somebody comes back. Somebody goes back up again. Somebody keeps coming through that door. Now, that's where we get the idea that there's a pearly gates and St. Peter's waiting at the gate to let people in. comes out of right there. Not true, but that's where it comes from. Now, there's a door that opens up in heaven, and somebody goes up and somebody comes back. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, it talks about that same door, and it says a door was opened in heaven and somebody goes up. See? Doors are a great study. James chapter 5, verse 9 says, Judge, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. And then he says, Behold, the judge standeth before the door. See? Now, that's a millennial context there. That goes back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Great study, oh. See, doors are a great study in the Bible. And in chapter 16, verse 9, right where we're at, you have the definitive passage on doors in your Bible. And if you want to understand what doors represent, then we start with chapter 16, verse 9, right where we're at. And everything that I gave you about the doors and the keys, no matter what they are doctrinally or how they work themselves out, they're always going to be a picture of, of, of the same thing in one way or the other. Do you ever see the first time the door is mentioned in Bible? You've got to see this. Take just a second. This is worth going back and looking to. Come back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 5. This is the first time you find the word door in your Bible. And I think it's very instructive. We call this in Bible study the law of first mention. Now, when you see this and you understand this, it, it becomes a real deal. Quite incredible. Genesis chapter 4, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now, here's what it says. It says, but unto Cain and to his offering, he had not respect. Talking about God. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, why art thou wroth? And why is thy countenance fallen? Now, you know what that's talking about. Let me bring it up to speed for you. You know, the Bible says that Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. And Abel brings a sheep, which was the right offering. Cain, 
He's a tiller of the ground. He's connected with the world. He's connected with the dirt. He, he brings the first fruits of his fruit. He brings potatoes and watermelons and, and brings all of the cabbage and all of the things that he grew. And I'm sure he was a good farmer. He did, I'm sure he did a great job. But he brings those to the Lord, and that brings us up here where the Bible says that when God looked at the offerings, he accepted Abel's, but he rejected Cain's. And then Cain got upset about it. Now, that's what it means there when it says, why has thou countenance fallen? You can, in other words, many people wear their feelings on their face. And you can see exactly what's hurting them or what's bothering them problems by, by just looking at them. And it's a thing where, you know, they, and that's Cain. And so he addresses that and he says, why has thou countenance fallen? What's the matter? And obviously Cain says, uh, it's recorded here, but I'm sure Cain answered back and said, well, you know what? You didn't do, uh, you, you didn't reject my offering. I worked just as hard as him and I brought my stuff up here. You took his, you didn't take mine, see? And the Lord said, well, why are you upset? Now that you know what I'm looking for, now that you know what I want, now that you know what I expect, I'll tell you what. So you didn't bring the right thing. No big deal. You go get the right one and I'll accept it. But if you don't, look at the rest of the verse. If thou doest well, verse 7, shalt thou not be accepted? That's a question. And the answer to that is yes. And if thou doest not well, here it comes, sin lieth at the door. Now, that's the first time you find door in the box. You know what that verse does? That verse right there alone takes away every excuse you and I ever had of not doing what's right. That verse right there takes away once and forever every, every excuse you and I have because we don't like the way something happens, so we get our nose bent at a joint. Our countenance falls, you see. You don't think you've got a fair deal. You don't think you, you should have got this or you should have done that. People, God's people are famous for getting their nose bent in a joint about stupid things. And the truth of the matter is, there's always an opportunity for you to do the right thing. Somebody says, well, I don't like going to church because I don't have any friends. The Bible says, he that hath friends must show with himself friendly. See, there's your opportunity. You don't take it, you're right in Cain's boat. You see, that's how it works. Once and forever, that verse takes away from us the excuse, whatever we may offer, of why we don't serve God and don't do what's right. It's your choice, just as it was his choice. God didn't say, well, because you did that, I'm booting you out of here and you ain't ever going to be around. God didn't say that. God said, why are you upset? And he said, I'm upset because you didn't take what I brought. God says, okay, I'll tell you what I'll do. You go get the right thing and I'll take it. See, it really wasn't about what he brought or what he didn't brought. And most of the time, it's never with God's people what they really say the problem is. But that's a great thing. That's a great verse. That always, it's always our choice. That passage about the door uh, given to Cain takes away any excuse you and I have for not doing what's right. You always have two choices in life. One of them is to go through this door and do what's right. The other one is to, as Cain did in verse 16, he was so upset, you know what he did? He left the presence of the Lord over an opportunity that he had and a door that God gave him that he wouldn't go through. It's always two doors in your life. <laughs> I'm just telling you, always two doors in your life. 
I don't care what situation you're faced with. I don't care what problem you come up against. I don't care who did what to you or who you think did what to you. You have always got two different choices, two different doors. And Cain's a great picture of that. That's the first time you find the word door in the Bible. All right, now verse chapter 16, back to uh, 1 Corinthians here. Chapter 16, verse 9 says, talking about doors here now, for a great door and effectual is open unto me. Now he says a great door and effectual. Now effectual means this door has some kind of effect. It's not a random door. In other words, the, Paul, the door that Paul's talking about was going to have an effect on somebody. Every door in the Bible that I gave you so far to look at, when you go back and study them out, you'll find that every one of those doors changes something about somebody. It may be history in general. It may be an individual person. But the great door Paul's talking about, an effectual means an opportunity in ministry. You see, that's the defining factor of a door in the Bible. A door is always going to be an opportunity. And God opens doors for people. You find it all through here. It's an effect of our lives, you know. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You see, that's prayer with a purpose. It's factual, effectual prayer. It has a purpose behind it. It's going to have an effect on something. And he says God opened up a door that's going to have an effect. Now, let me just say this to you. An open door in your life without an effect is worthless. But when God opens a door in your world or my world or this church, God's purpose behind it is to have an effect on something. And that's what Paul's talking about. One of the great illustrations of that is found in Revelation chapter 3. And there you have the story of the great Philadelphian church age. And he says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, he says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. I know thy works. Here it comes. Behold, I have set before thee an open door. See? And no man can shut it, for thou hast little strength and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now, that's a great illustration. And uh, when this door got open, it affected the whole world. And here we have a door with a key called the key of David. Now, I don't know if you know what the key of David is or not, but the key of David was the key to David's relationship with God, and that was his attitude of heart toward the word of God. That would be Psalms 119. You know, you find churches today, uh, you find churches today, uh, some of the old style churches that have been around for a long time, they still have the old biblical names, but nothing but biblical anymore. Uh, I, I love the idea of a church being called Antioch Baptist Church. Now, it shows you that at one time, maybe they don't know what it means now and probably don't. That shows at one time somebody understood their Bible. They understood that it all started back with Antioch in Acts chapter 11. That's, to me, that's very instructive. Now, probably if you ask 25 people, even the pastor himself, the real pastor is probably long gone. What's the significance of that? He wouldn't know. Then you find churches that are called Open Door Baptist Churches. You ever see that? And I guarantee you, whoever originally called that church Open Door was basing their ministry on Revelation chapter 3. Probably isn't today. Probably isn't today. 
Now, when we, when we picked a name for our church, we got it out of Jeremiah chapter 6. We called it Old Paths because Old Paths Baptist Church because the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 6 that you and I are to look for the old paths. The new path everybody on isn't any good. Got to get back to the old path. So, you know, we kind of made our, our, I mean, that's, that, that's better than grace fellowship, better than sweet by and by or nothing. You know, it's got a little more doctrine to it, see? But you're going to find when we come a little bit farther down the line in chapter 3, verse 20, oh, we got a church of the closed door. You see, this church was great because God set before them an open door. And nobody could shut that door. And that door literally ran from 1600, if you know your church history, up to the beginning of the 1900s. And uh, the reason why that it was a church of the open doors found in verse 8 because it says, For thou hast kept my word. And uh, the key to having God open doors in your life and the keys to having God open doors in our church is your attitude toward the Word of God in both cases. And that's the way it works. And that's the, that's the key to building your own individual life. And that's the key to us building our church. And that's why I've told you many, many times from day one, when we started our church, my whole goal was to build a Philadelphian church, church of the open door, in a Laodicean church period, church of the closed door. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 3, you'll find that in that particular verse, this is the Laodicean church now, Jesus Christ is knocking on the door of his own church trying to get back in. The door is now closed. Great study. Great study. We don't have the time to get into it this morning, but a great study. Now, in our text here, Paul said a great door and effectual. A door that's going to have an effect was open unto me. And he said that in our text in 16.9, for a great door and effectual is open unto me. You ever lose your keys? I've lost my keys. I, I, you, you ever see my keys? They are the biggest wad of keys you'll ever find. And I have to have them because I, 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 I've solved a lot of my problem. I, I put three big screws in a wall. And every time I come in from whatever, I hang my keys on that, on that deal. And that's the best thing I've ever done. But I, 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 when you lose your keys, you're done. You can't get in your house. You can't get in your car. I remember one time I, I had a little, and I worked for an organization, and I had, a, I had a little white Ford Ranger I used to drive around, and I used to work and come back. And what I did one time was when I, I, I did it twice. I couldn't believe it. You know, you, you pull up to your house, and you got your, your paperwork, you got your computer, you got all the stuff you get, and you got to lock your truck because all your equipment's in it. You don't want to haul everything in. But you take your, your hands are pretty full. And then you get out, you, you close the door. And I went into the garage and I just remembered I locked my keys in my car. Now, this is my work truck. And so, I, you know, what are you going to do? I got to go to work and I'm on call. If I get an emergency, I'm really in trouble. So, you know, I called the key guy, lock guy, whatever he does. And he's a key man if you're locked out anyway. <laughs> I think he went to Yale. But anyhow. You'll get it. He comes over one of those jiffy things, and he's in my car, I mean, 10 seconds. And I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm appreciative. And he says, I said, how much? is $40. Okay. I mean, what am I going to do? I mean, price of stupidity is high. And so I gave him the $40, you know. And so, honest to goodness, it was not two weeks later. I ain't kidding you. Two weeks later, I did the exact same thing in the same spot. And I called this guy, and I'm embarrassed at this point. I'm really embarrassed. 
I'm really embarrassed. So I call this guy up, and he said, he laughs. He said, no problem. And so I come back over. He comes back over. Same thing. So I'm getting out my money. I said, how much? He says, $30. So I said, oh, $30. I said, I said, last time it was 40 I said, I'm just, thank you. He said, no. He says, and he put his hand on my shoulder. He was kind of kidding. He says, we give a discount for stupid. <laughs> hey, let me tell you something. The only thing I know in life, even a little bit, is the Bible. You don't want me fixing your car. But I live by my, shut up. When I live by myself. <laughs> When I lived by myself, I called the, my washing machine wouldn't work, put the clothes in, put the soap in, and it wouldn't work. And I called, finally called a guy, and I said, I don't know what's the matter with it. He come out, this cost me $25. This was back in the 70s, so this was, it was a lot of money back then. So he comes over there, and he looks at it, and I said, I don't know what's going on with it. So he pushes a couple buttons, puts the lid down, and it starts to run. <laughs> I paid $25 to find out that you got to put the lid down before you push the button. You don't want me washing your clothes either. I'm just telling it. But, you know, it's a, that's where it's at. You lose your keys, you lose everything. And you, 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 you can't function. And I'm telling you, when you don't have the right keys to the Bible, you're just as dysfunctional. And, uh, you know, I saw that years and years and years ago. And when Paul saw it, and he saw how important that keys were because keys opened doors. And he knew all about keys and doors. That's why he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he said, Furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach Christ's gospel, here it is, and a door was opened unto me. See that thing? Then he said over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, he says, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bond. Now there's a door of utterance, you see. Now for you and for me, that concept of keys and doors really comes into two different aspects. It really does. The first ones would be opportunities for this church. God opening doors and God closing doors. And that's very important. You know, one of the things that I saw very early, you take the word God and you take the word gospel. I saw very early when I was starting in my Bible in Genesis chapter 1 that the Bible says the Spirit of God there, and I think it's verse 3, it says it moved upon the face of the waters. You know, that's a strange verse that he said that because the Spirit of God is always moving through the rest of the Bible. There's never a place from that verse that the Spirit of God isn't going somewhere. Now, very, I don't want to get theological with you, but your job and my job is to find out the pattern, the flight plan of the Holy Spirit of God. It's given in the Bible. And you're supposed to know where God is at and what God is doing so you can be part of it, you see. That's how it works. But you think that thing that the Holy Spirit of God is always moving. You take God. You know, God wants you to do something after you got saved. you know that? There's some places he wants you to go. He wants to give you open doors. He wants to give this church open doors. But you got to go through those doors when he gives them to you. You take the word God. You know you can't spell God without the word go? He said, I'm going to preach the gospel. You know you can't, preach, you can't spell gospel without the word go? 
In other words, when you got saved, God wants you to go somewhere, do something, but the way you get there is through the door God opens for you. That's true of this church, true of you and me. It's just that simple. Taking the opportunities that God gives us. I mean, just that simple. And God will continue to grow you and grow this church as God gives us open doors, just like he did with Paul, and then we go through them. You see, then that's the, the aspect, first of all, is for our church. Then the second aspect is for you and for me. And for you and for me, God has opportunities. He has doors for you every day of your life. And now this is where you got to be careful because this is like wearing snowshoes through a minefield. Because you know and I know that we can, and we're all famous for this, we, we get something we want to do, and even though it isn't, what God wants us to do. It's what we want to do. So we orchestrate the circumstances to get what we want and then try to drag God along and say, look what God did. I'm always interested when I talk to people when they start to tell me about certain things in their life and they'll say uh, about some great decision or something they did and they'll always say, well, God really spoke to my heart. That always gets my little ears up. And I always want to hear that process. Because I know that usually that process is going to lead to a disaster because they don't even know how God speaks to them. I had a guy say one time, well, you know what? God led me. And I said, how did he lead you? Come down with a leash or a hand or how did he do that? Big stick pushing it along? How did he lead you? Somebody else said, well, God told me to do that. Really? What were you doing? Did he just did it come over your radio? I mean, did it cancel out your Howard Stern you were listening to and come through that? Is that how it went? I mean, how, you know, how did, you, how did he tell you? How did he do that? I, I get intrigued by things like that because I've dealt with enough people and I know enough people because God, you know, God, most people cannot recognize the doors that God puts right in front of them. Last week, I gave you a great verse in Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 26, when it talked about how that when you go back down to Egypt, God doesn't go. And we can make the Bible say whatever we want it to say. We do it all the time. And that's a very dangerous thing. And I see God's people do it all the time. They, they, they get into some relationship, and because they want the relationship so bad in their mind, they think, well, this person's saved. He has to be saved. Why does he have to be saved? Because he uses God's name all the time. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> We're famous for taking crowbars and open doors that God never opened and then claiming God did it. But you see, that's the mark of the Laodicean church, isn't it? Because the word Laodicea means rights of the people. And we live in a church age that that's exactly what it is. We always find a way to get what we want and then make everybody try to believe that God's the one that did it. It's the way we do it. It's the way we do it. You know what? If you really want to do what's right and you want to get to the point where God is going to use you, then you have to have a process. If you think I just get on a, my horse and put my cowboy hat on and yell yeehaw and run off into the sunset about building a church. That's not the way it works. <clears throat> I have very little respect for most pastors, not because they're not nice guys, but I have very little respect for most pastors. You know why? This is my own personal thing. Maybe I shouldn't even tell you this, but I have very little respect for most pastors. You know why? Because they never produce what they preach. You see, you may not like me, and you may not like the way I preach. You may not like my style of ministry, and that's okay. But there's one thing you've got to give me. I produce what I preach. Amen. And it may not be what people like, but it's what the Bible says you're supposed to do. Right. 
I hear guys get up there preaching all the time and they never produce anything out of their preaching. I mean, if you got a church and you're, you know, in there 10, 12 years and, and, uh, and you got, you got things to be done and you're still doing everything or you need a song director or you need a youth guy or you need this and you can't reach down inside your own church because you haven't trained anybody, you're falling short of what your preaching is or maybe you're not preaching anything. I don't know. But I, I, I look at things like that because I'm telling you, it, there's no reason why once you get a handle on the Bible that you don't understand that God puts doors in your life every day of your life. Every day of your life and my life, we have opportunities, doors that God puts in front of us. And you know what? If you want, if you want to get involved and you want to really do something for God, my suggestion to you and your prayer life is ask God to give you a door. Of ministry in your life. Ask God to give you a door. And when he does, when he does, then you go through it. Now keep in mind, it may, be not the, it may not be the door you wanted. And it may not open as fast or the way you think it should. That's immaterial. But when God presents a door to you and it's based on the biblical principles... And God has all kinds of opportunities he wants us to go through, doors every day in our life. You know the great model of that is in Acts chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch. Here's a guy named Philip who's an evangelist, and he's one of the deacons out of Acts chapter 7 there, or 6. And he's a great preacher. And he's down there in Samaria because a revival has broken out in Samaria uh, based on his preaching. And thousands of people are coming to Christ. But God gives him another door of opportunity and has an Ethiopian eunuch on the backside of the desert out here in Gaza, nowhere, and he picks up Philip, who is the absolute key evangelist in what's going on in Samaria, transports him out of there, and then plops him right down in the desert, giving him that guy. And when you study that passage, you got a picture of exactly what God wants to do in your life and in my life. That is a picture of an opportunity of an open door for you and for me. And when you study Philip's reaction to it, Bible says he ran. He never questioned the fact. You see, in Philip's mind, that probably was not the door that he thought. I mean, if I was having a revival someplace and 100,000 people would show up, I would think that that would be the door. But then God shut that door and it opened the door for one person. Now, in human reasoning and human thinking, that doesn't sound very logical, does it? But in God's thinking, it does. I mean, here's what happened historically. You either take 10,000 people here or you go over here to one guy who takes it back to his whole nation and the whole nation gets saved from the one evangelist you send back. Now, the other idea is, you know what? When God closed the door in Samaria, Philip didn't worry because Philip knew that the real key wasn't him anyhow. God always has somebody else to take the place when he closes one door and sends us someplace else. But doors don't always open and close the way we want, you see, because we're later seeing Christians. We want our rights. We want justice. Oh, you're going to, we're all going to get justice here, not food going down the line. Now, chapter 16 is, is an incredible chapter. And, uh, you know, the problem we all have is how do you know when God opens a door? I mean, let's just face it. Okay, Bob, that's nice stuff so far, but how do I know when God opens a door? 
Well, I've already told you. I mean, how do you keep from getting into the wrong door or open a door yourself? And I already told you the models of church at, at uh, Philadelphia that says there in verse 7 and 8 that that church has kept his word. And because they kept the word, that they opened up the door. God opened up the door. And let me tell you something. When God opens up the door, nobody shuts it. Nobody shuts it. Somebody says, well, you know what so-and-so is saying about your church? I could care less what they're saying. You know why? Because God opened his door, and there's nothing anybody out there is going to ever say that's going to shut it because the promise is that when God opens it, no man can shut it. But the downside of that is when God shuts it, no man's going to open it either. So it's a thing where that's true of your life and my life. He says, thou hast kept my word. God never violates his own principles. You learned and recognized the hand of God in our lives uh, and when it's God and when it's not simply by understanding biblical principles. In the Bible, this is called discernment. And in the early chapters of Proverbs, you're told how to get discernment. And discernment is the ability that most God's people don't have that when they see a situation, when they see the situation, they don't know can't tell if it's God or not. You know why? Because one, they don't know how God operates because they don't know the principles. So they're kind of got to roll the dice. And boy, let me tell you, now, the devil will have a field day with that. There should be nothing in your life that doesn't happen that isn't opened up that you can't tell if it's of God or not based on the principles you're already knowing and the book you're already living in and the word of God you're already keeping. This is discernment. Simple, simply learning the patterns by which God does things. You know, that's the whole key. That's the, that's the whole bottom line is understanding the pattern of God, how God does what he does, how he accomplishes what he accomplishes. You know, I look back at my whole life, and my whole life has been nothing more than, than God opening up doors in my life. I, I, I think of how I got to Kansas City. And, you know, most of you don't know this story, but my, my father in the Lord, uh, who meant more to me and means more to me than any man on, mortal man on earth, uh, was Mel Sabaka, who took me in after my father died and did everything for me. And he basically, him and his wife became uh, my, uh, my mom and dad, and, and his son Dan became uh, my brother, and, and Linda became my sister. And we just had a, they just took me in. And everything I learned about the ministry, I learned from him. And him and I had talked. We'd travel together, and I would lead singing for him and, 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 and do all the things that I was doing was part of his ministry. I would preach his class when he was gone and teach his Bible studies when he was out of town. And, and uh, him and I had talked many, many times of going out and starting a church somewhere. And I want to tell you, that was the desire of my heart, to be with him for the rest of my life would have been absolutely the greatest thing I could ever have. But you know what? God had other plans. And I remember back around uh, 1973 it was, maybe 1974 I guess it was, that the recession hit back then and everybody lost their jobs. And I was working at that time at the Hoover Company, which was made vacuum cleaners, washing machines. And, you know, it was a thing where I had a good job uh, for the time. I, I, I worked nine to five and I could work when I didn't want to work uh, on weekends. I, I, you know, I could do whatever I want to do. Gave me plenty of time for my ministry and what I was doing. When they had high school camp and junior high camp, I would go out and take my vacation, do the whole week out there and, uh, and just spend uh, doing. That's where I really learned aspects of ministry. And I had a great deal going. 
And what happened was, as the, the, the economy went to pieces, I got bumped off of my, my job and pretty much got bumped from the main plant down to another plant and basically uh, got bumped out. And at that particular time in my life, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have anything. I'd lost my job. I'd just gotten married and, you know, and we, the thing where I didn't, uh, I, uh, you know, I didn't know what, what I was going to do. And, and my brother-in-law, who uh, my Barb's side of the family has always been in groceries, running grocery stores, and, uh, and they had a, a large grocery store. And my brother-in-law, great guy, he says, hey, look, come in and work for me. You're part of the family. Come on in and work for me. And he made me the produce manager. Sent me off to spend a lot of money teaching me about, you know, fruits and all those things. You got to care about how you say that today. It taught me a lot of different things about that, you know, and, and you know, and it was okay. I, but I lost all my freedom. I had to work now Saturday. I had to work weird hours. I got Sunday off, but even would go in on Sunday afternoon. And I would, I would just, I would, I would struggle with things like that. And, and, you know, but I had to do what I had to do. And so God gave me that. But then, right after God did that, about not more than three months later, Mel gets up and decides he's going to go to New York to build a church. Now, he'd been in Canton for 56 years. He'd been in the ministry 30 years here in this church. And now he's going to go to New York City where nobody doesn't know anybody, and God gave him a burden to build a church. And certain key people are going with him. But I'm stuck now. The dream that I had to go with him was now that door was slammed shut. I can't go to my brother. I've worked with him for a year now who probably is not saved. I'm going to go to him now after he's invested all this money in me and tell him that I'm sorry, thank you, but I got to leave now. I, I couldn't do that. I mean, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do that after he did that. And it was the hardest thing in my life. It was the hardest single thing in my life to ever have happened to me that he was leaving and going to New York. The world was coming to an end in Canton, Ohio, as far as I was concerned, because the guy they put in there was a zero compared to him. Everything that was everything had evaporated when he went to New York, and I'm left here 